to another episode of Public Problems. Um, here again today, I am with a number of Bush School students who had the uh, luck or unfortunate opportunity of having a course with me in the fall of 2018. And as part of this, they were asked to go identify a major public problem or policy area that they thought uh, was important and to dive into the details of that issue and come up with some of the main challenges for why that uh, issue persists, and then some potential solutions for us to think through. Um, but before we jump on the actual topic of this group, I would like to give them an opportunity to uh, introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Kiefer Patterson. I'm Maheen Zahid. Hi, I'm Katie Leach. I'm Yvonne Long. I'm Colton Happy. All right. So uh, let me begin before also giving the title to say thank you uh, to you all for your work on this and all the hours that you put into it um, and agreeing to have a conversation with me about it. I really enjoy this and uh, hopefully we can share some information with people who get to listen to this. So thank you for your time and for your work. Um, this group, uh, like a number of the groups from this season, didn't uh, shy away from controversy um, and went head on into the issue of immigration. Their report is titled Repealing DACA. And so before we jump into some of the details of what is DACA, um, I imagine people have heard a lot about it but may not know exactly what it is. Why were you interested as a group in this issue in particular? So basically we chose this issue because um, it's something that's really big uh, right now in the news. Um, obviously, uh, you had uh, the Obama administration uh, create DACA through an uh, executive uh, memorandum. And then recently, uh, President Trump, uh, well, about a year ago or so, um, said that he was wanting to repeal it and get rid of it. And it's uh, caused a lot of um, controversy among the media, you know, immigrants, uh, people who actually live here in the U.S. So, I mean, it's, it's caused a lot of issues on all fronts. And it's something that we wanted to kind of explore and get a better understanding um, as to why maybe there isn't uh, any legislation like drafted up just yet to deal with this issue. And uh, even more so, uh, you can't talk about DACA without talking about uh, immigration. It's, I mean, the two go hand in hand. So it was just something that we, we see as a society. Uh, it's a big issue facing our country right now. And we just wanted to kind of explore the issues and maybe uh, try to offer up some potential solutions that uh, would address this issue. And even more so, also talk about the history of somewhat of, about how the U.S. has previously dealt with immigration. Mm -hmm. um, and also, just adding to what Kifa said, I think we're um, a group of pretty diverse people. We're not all American citizens, I think, and this uh, uh, topic fit very well with us because, uh, like, I've been through the immigration process. Um, uh, he's, and I come he's from, from Taiwan. Yeah, he's mm -hmm. from to Taiwan, and. We have conservative people on the group, we have liberals on the group, and we have someone very neutral on the group. So I think, like, we had completely, all of us had completely different ideas about it, and the, I think we uh, provide a very holistic um, kind of approach towards this issue. So um, I think it came as a perfect fit for us, this topic. Yeah, this is something we were, we were talking about before we started recording, uh, about some of the fun the group had with coming from all over the world, different political backgrounds, came to this issue with a number of different lenses and then had to kind of dive into the details and the arguments and come to some agreed upon potential solutions. 
And uh, given the nature of this issue um, and the complexity of it and um, the nature of the, you know, really the migrant, migrant crisis on the south border of the United States, uh, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. And it's one of the few places, it's one of the things I really enjoy about this class where five people like yourselves from all over the world and different uh, political backgrounds can address something that's such a hot button. Um, so before we jump into the history, in case there is someone listening um, that doesn't know what DACA is, so maybe tell me what DACA stands for and in terms of the acronym, and what is this program and why is it so controversial? Yeah, so DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program. Um, and like Kiefer said, it's an executive memorandum created by former President Obama on June 12th, 2012. Um, and President Obama um, implemented this program because of Congress's failure to pass the DREAM Act, which we'll get into the specifics of what the DREAM Act is. But basically, um, it, DACA specifically, um, it just like protects um, people that were brought to the country um, under 16 years old, um, and it postpones any deportation processes for two years with the ability for them to renew their status. Um, and also, we wanted to clarify that DACA doesn't give um, these participants citizenship necessarily, but it gives them um, status for work authorization so that they can pour into the economy and provide for their families. Um, and yeah, and we can get into the requirements of like how you even qualify for DACA um, and just like some of those specifically, like I said, you had to be under 16 years old when you were brought into this country. Um, oftentimes um, their parents brought them in. Um, our research shows that DACA participants were brought in um, to the United States at an average age of six and a half years old. And the average DACA participant right now is 24 and a half years old. Um, and also to qualify for DACA, they would have had to continuously resided in the United States since June 15th of 2007. So these aren't individuals that have been going back and forth um, to, I guess you could call their home country, to the U.S. These people have been living here um, of the majority of their lives, um, more than the majority of their lives. And so, yeah, and then also a super important requirement for DACA recipients to qualify for the status they would have had to be in school um, or graduated um, from college or from high school um, or have some sort of like vocational um, certification or have an honorably discharge or be an honorably discharged veteran. And they also cannot have convicted, con like be been convicted of any felony or significant misdemeanor. Those, so it's like kind of a complicated process, but um, th that is what you would have to be to be like those requirements to get DACA status. And so once you have DACA status, it has to be renewed every two years. And the basic thing that it protects you from is deportation and allowing you to be engaged in the economy. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Right. And to uh, add to it, I think it's key to look at the first two words is deferred action. Uh, DACA was meant to be a temporary solution. Uh, it's not permanent. So we don't obviously don't want illegal immigrants uh, every two years renewing their status forever. Uh, this was a temporary solution until we could come up with bipartisan legislation. So you're saying that having people re-up their status every two years is maybe less than ideal. Right, rather than going through a uh, more formal process to, more get, process to get citizenship. 
It was a weak attempt at an early joke. Okay. <laughs> so, um, all right, I think that gives a, and maybe the specific program requirements will come back up, but I think that probably gives the listeners um, an idea of what just the basic parameters of DACA are. And we mentioned the DREAM Act. Um, we mentioned that there's a history that's kind of gotten us up to this point. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about what is the, you know, just a brief history of immigration in the United States kind of bringing us up to the failure of the DREAM Act that has led to this. And I think uh, before uh, discussing the history, uh, I, I, would like, I would like to discuss some uh, demographic of DACA participants because that is related to our history. Okay, uh, uh, as of August to the, uh, 2018, the number of DACA recipients from Mexico is uh, about uh, 5,600,000. That takes about 80% of all recipients. So the people from Mexico in DACA is a cru crucial issue. Yeah, and uh, we also compared the occupational distribution of DACA between the uh, DACA recipients and United States citizens. Okay, so uh, we find the um, uh, the occupations of DACA recipients that are mainly in the food-related occupation, sales, office, and administrative support, and construction trades. And if we comparing with the occupation of the United States citizens, we can find the DACA recipients take more labor-demanding professions. So they take the food preparing and serving occupation, construction trades, building and ground maintenance, and farming, fishing, and forestry. So uh, if we compare these two groups' occupation, we can find that they are highly different and worth to be compared and related to our solution and our history. So just to, con to confirm with you, that's 558,000 uh, um, DACA recipients from Mexico yeah. total. So this, is a, this, is a, this impacts over half a million people, yeah. children or yeah. young, young yeah. people. Okay. It's about 700,000 total. Okay. And then, and uh, so just shy of 700,000 total, 558,000 are uh, from Mexico. So, what's going on here? How did we get into a situation where half a million people needed some sort of protection from deportation with an executive memorandum? What's the history here? So, um, me, and, uh, me and Colton kind of broke up the history a little bit here uh, into sections, but different eras of uh, border policy. Um, the first era is the frontier era. And that roughly consisted from 1848 to 1910. Um, during this time, uh, there was large unregulated immigration in and out of the border um, into the United States. Uh, a lot of a lot of the focus around that time was more so on uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, um, and that's where they were more so focusing on um, excluding Chinese people uh, from the United States from immigration. Um, but you, you get into around the customs era, around 1910 to 1970, and that was around the time whenever uh, border security started kind of becoming more strict a little bit. So around that time, you had the, uh, the Mexican Revolution, and around that time, uh, you started seeing a lot of forts being built along the, uh, along the border. Uh, and then that went all the way up to uh, 1970, um, and around that time, you had what's called the law enforcement era. 
And uh, this was ushered, ushered in by the Nixon administration. And around this time, you see a lot of uh, a surge of kind of conservative ideals happening around this time. And you also saw a lot of uh, like immigration acts passed. You saw the uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. Uh, you saw the Immigration Act of 1990, and then also the Illegal Immigration Immigrant Responsibility Act of 96. And fast forwarding into the security era, which is the one that's present, this took place uh, or came into play around 2001 with the attacks on uh, September 11th. Um, around this time, you saw the uh, department in the wake of 9-11, you saw the Department of Homeland Security uh, be created. And essentially, this uh, was, I think, the biggest, it was the biggest consolidation of government entities since 1947 when the DOD was created. And... Uh, under this, you started getting uh, border security, uh, Coast Guard, and FEMA, and all these other organizations kind of consolidated into this one entity. And uh, you also had things like the Patriot Act um, and other things passed that kind of gave more power to law enforcement. So those are four areas, I think, that are really uh, important uh, when it comes to talking about immigration. One of the other things that, uh, that we looked at was uh, this isn't the first time um, – immigration has ever dealt, or the United States has ever dealt with immigrant children. So during the, uh, during the reign of Fidel Castro in, in Cuba, uh, there was, a, in the 50s and 60s, uh, there was, uh, obviously, uh, Fidel Castro was a, a communist, and back around that time, you know, we were anti, you know, communists, I mean, still are. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a general sentiment in the country, <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, uh, but basically, um, there was a lot of uh, efforts, operations kind of conducted around that time. And the CIA, uh, State Department, did a lot, you know, to kind of discredit this, uh, the uh, Castro regime. And one of those things um, that happened was they created this operation uh, called Pedro Pan. And essentially what this did was they started throwing out propaganda and trying to convince the local populace of, the, of uh, Cuba that Fidel Castro was going to basically take their children from them and put them into camps and kind of have them brought up under the state's uh, control. And this scared uh, a lot of those parents. And essentially what they, what they kind of did was they, you know, scared all these Cuban parents to like send their children to the United States. And so you had this huge flow of uh, Cuban immigrant children being sent with just parentless just to the, uh, to the United States. And uh, the United States realized, oh crap, you know, how, holy crap, we're getting a lot of you know, people coming in now, now we have to figure out, come up with plans on how to deal with this. And essentially it was, it, they, they, put, they put kids all along the state, uh, all around the state of Florida. And um, basically what happened was you had, uh, I think a, there was, this results in roughly around 14,000 children. And those children, some of them had to wait up to 20 years to be reunited with their family. And so that kind of gives a history as far as like the government, this isn't the first time the government has ever had to deal with uh, immigrant children and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And obviously it was kind of a mess mm -hmm. uh, how they handled it, but uh, that kind of gives you a little insight. And then I think uh, Colton's going to talk with you about uh, Mexico and things like that. Yeah, so looking specifically at uh, immigration with Mexico, uh, I mean, you can go back to the 1800s when uh, the American and Mexican War and the Texas Republic, uh, the changing borderline uh, affected a lot of people. And immigration, regard, regardless of all of that, uh, immigration tended to uh, go towards the border for economic purposes. 
so even through all the wars and that, uh, people were living at the border for economic trade reasons. And looking at a program that the U.S. did with Mexico, you look at the Bracero program, uh, which basically translates to someone who works with their hands. And uh, the U.S. government contracted directly with Mexican workers to come in as laborers and farm workers. And so this started in uh, 1942 as a reaction to the uh, lack of labor in uh, the post-World War II era. So the program lasted from 1942 to 1964 and brought in 4.2 million immigrants. And a big problem with this was that there was no accountability uh, for immigrants once they came in. Um, so there was <clears throat> reported that about 20% of the contracts around Portland, Oregon were completely abandoned in 1945 or yeah, 1945. And that was because these workers were coming in and living in worker camps and they were getting paid around 30 cents an hour. Uh, so clearly the circumstances made for labor camps to be kind of like a ghetto slum. And to get away from that, all they had to do was leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, no one could really check on their contracts, and they're easily abandoned. Uh, so that program was terminated in 1964. And then we start looking at more of the presidential acts. And uh, a lot of them are broad, but they were typically in a like sense of, this is going to solve our problem with Mexico. So as Cooper said, we had Reagan with uh, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. And the point of this was to ensure verification, record-keeping, and anti-discrimination practices. Uh, What's something is really interesting to note, though, the act excluded all agricultural jobs. So there is clearly an understanding that uh, we were relying on immigrants for agriculture jobs and we wanted to tackle immigration issues, but not that much, I yeah, guess. not that part of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was kind of turning a blind eye to that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, with Clinton, we had the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, and the point of this was to keep track, basically. So he uh, informed the Attorney General that he needed to uh, create an exit and entry program uh, where they were keeping track of immigrants, and they were... Attorney General also needed to report all uh, visa overstayers to Congress. And there wasn't a whole lot of enactment on enforcing visa overstayers and getting them out of the country. It was basically just like a record-keeping act. And then uh, we look at the DREAM Act, which stands for the Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors. And the DREAM Act started um, in 2001. And it was supposed to be an amendment to the Clinton Act. But what also happened in 2001 was the attacks on 9-11. And that's kind of the start of a major um, bipartisan polarization in America. And people are really starting to disagree on issues starting then. And two sides really started to form uh, with human rights and social security rights. Not social security. Security. Or (laughs) national security. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this act was uh, 2001 to 2010. Multiple times it was tried to pass and uh, never made it through until 2010. It made it through the House, but then even then it never got through the Senate. And that kind of brings us into um, President Obama's act of uh, DACA. So the real 
leading up to DACA, which is the probably what we should turn our attention to, um, it's essentially a consequence of repeated failures by Congress to act, right? I mean, is that kind of a fair assessment of this? And so given the changing nature, the, the president turned to an executive memorandum, which has been the same kind of talk that the Trump administration has had as well, because the legislature is not, you know, doing its job, right? Okay. So also recently, as part of this, before we um, move on from this, the amount of migrants seeking to be in the U.S. really started upticking under uh, the Obama administration to numbers that we hadn't seen before lately, right? And so this has really put a lot of political pressure on DACA in particular and, uh, I guess, immigration reform more broadly because there's been real spikes going back to 2000 and... um, I think about 2014, as a consequence of deteriorating conditions in Central America and South America, right? And so this issue, we're going to focus on DACA, but this issue of immigration reform um, hasn't gone away, and in some ways has become more present and more pressing. I mean, just in the news, I think yesterday or the day before, there were there were stories of Hondur, uh, Honduran migrants uh, 2,000 of them coming through uh, recently. And so this is becoming a, a, a continual issue, and it's also becoming a political um, uh, a political concern. It, uh, you know, Obama was referred to as the deporter-in-chief at times, and there was pushback in the, uh, from advocacy groups on how he handled immigration. And then, of course, some of the, some of the biggest points from... Uh, the Trump administration's early years were bans on uh, migrants from certain countries and uh, ramping up border uh, security in ways that weren't exactly transparent, right? And then, of course, in class we covered this, but you have the, the administrative tool of separating children from their, their parents. And so this is kind of all percolating and continuing all the way up till today. So um, we talked a little bit about um, um, the lack of bipartisan support and how really since 2001 and uh, following that, uh, kind of the camps have kind of retreated a little bit, the political parties, and we haven't have haven't been able to get major reform on this. What else? Uh, what else about the kind of background of of DACA? is useful before we move on to our solutions and recommendations. Who are all of the, uh, we've hit on some of them, but what are the stakeholders in this situation? Yeah, so um, key stakeholders are um, American citizens and DACA participants, and um, we kind of split um, conservative and liberal views um, because they're super important stakeholders that um, are butting heads currently. And so... As far as the American citizens, I think there's a lot of concern about the tax base and how much um, DACA um, recipients are costing versus adding to the economy. And so we, I got to do some research on that. Um, and it is estimated that DACA recipients have received over $100 billion of government-funded benefits 
um, specifically free education, free public education, Medicaid, food stamps, and WIC programs. Um, it is um, important to note that um, DACA recipients, because of their legal status, don't receive Medicaid, food stamps, or like WIC, WIC programs traditionally, like um, qualifying Americans would. Um, but they tend to receive that through um, their American children or American family members. Um, <coughs> Medicaid specifically is given to um, a, um, DACA recipients that are having what will be an American-born child, and that's basically the cost from um, the Medicaid. But um, the main cost is the public education. And so um, the National Center for Education Statistics estimates that on average over um, $12,000 is spent on um, childhood education, um, K-12. And then the cost is arguably higher for DACA recipients because they often fall um, qualify for free school lunches and require additional English language learning. Um, and so that is a huge factor for American citizens because they can argue that um, basically a lot of their taxes are going out towards this, but it's also important to know that DACA recipients also pay a lot of taxes. Um, they pay a lot of local taxes just in, in the um, form of sales taxes, um, and they actually file, they are able to file income taxes, and it's estimated that about half of undocumented immigrants as a whole, not just um, DACA recipients, but um, half of all undocumented immigrants in the United States file um, income taxes through a taxpayer identification number, um, which allows you to file without a social security number. Um, so the Cato Institute produced a study that estimates that DACA participants print money as well as produce a net fiscal impact of about $60 billion. Um, so yes, um, DACA participants are... Um, costing the government a lot of money, but they're also contributing a lot, and they're often working in jobs that um, Americans don't typically line up at the door for. Um, so, so the net effect, based at least on this one mm -hmm. Cato Institute study, is positive financially, yes. just specifically financially. Okay, For sure. Um, it is. And then we also talked about, so they, asked, they actually calculated how much be to repeal um, DACA completely and deport um, all of DACA participants um, because that's potentially what um, the Trump administration um, is facing. I mean, they, they haven't necessarily said that that's what they're going to do, but it's just um, it's up in the air right now. And so they calculated the cost of that. And they said that over 10 years, um, repealing and deporting all of the DACA participants would cost the United States over $283 billion over the 10 years and that $7.5 billion would be from deportation cost alone. Um, and they estimate the Center for American Progress allotted a cost of over um, $10,000 per um, deportation. So deportation isn't just like a simple solution. It's actually quite um, expensive. And um, also, um, of course, it's not just like a tax base um, um, concern for American citizens, but... Um, I think a lot of American citizens are concerned if they're taking um, away what could be American jobs, and then also they might be driving down wages to be lower, and that's you know a valid concern. And so um, the studies that I found in my research claimed that um, 
they found no negative effects on overall wages of employment for American workers, so that's good news for the American citizenry. And the study also discovered that the highly skilled immigrants, um, and that would just be anyone with an education pretty much, and most DACA participants, since they have to have that education um, requirement to even like get their status of DACA participants, um, they are considered highly skilled workers. So the study found that they actually had a positive impact on Americans with skills as well as on working class Americans. So they don't take away high skilled jobs or low skilled jobs is basically what that um, finding says. And then also that there was even evidence that those highly skilled jobs helped immigrants um, to create more jobs. Um, so, Given the kind of what the evidence is on the financial impact, what are the two competing narratives. You said you said that as a group you highlighted the conservative and the liberal viewpoints. So where where's this impasse at? Why are we on such different playing fields that we can't come to agreement on this? Yeah, so before we, could, we can answer the video question, I'll talk about the conservative point of view and the um, kind of, um, uh, sorry, doubts they have regarding DACA and why they're against it or, you know, why they have some reservations regarding DACA. So the two major reservations they have is number one, security that um, Portman talk about, talked about and sharing of limited resources. So uh, from a security point of view, they're, they're on some point justified because they're fleeing some of them, some of these rocket participants, this e, the, sorry, these illegal immigrants, they're fleeing um, uh, countries which are probably state sponsors of terrorism or they're fleeing terrorism or, you know, bad conditions in their own country. So there's a small chance that uh, these people who come in, they uh, might cause some kind of trouble that that's happened. They might, you know, replicate the kind of trouble they're having in their own country. They replicate it here. So the uh, this is justified to some extent uh, uh, for the American citizens, citizens. But also on the other hand, they're more aware and they're more, because they know that they're under pressure because one small, some small mess up could uh, lead them to be deported and they don't want that. So they're extra careful and uh, um, we're, I think, discussing, uh, I think yesterday in Dr. Leahy's class that they're more, you know, they, they want to they want to have um, uh, the benefits that they have right now and they don't want to mess it up. So they're going to be extra careful and not, you know, go towards creating the trouble. Uh, second, sharing of limited resources includes uh, employment as well. Because uh, these, uh, some of them, some of the American people think that they're taking away jobs from um, from people. Even um, I've mentioned in the report that uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she said that she she stated a fact that uh, these people are taking away jobs that could right like rightfully be American jobs. But uh, a study has found that, um, that most of the most or these people who are employed, they are uh, they are very qualified at their jobs uh, and they're not taking away jobs from the American people. They're qualified and uh, when uh, Trump announced the termination of DACA, um, Washington, multinationals in Washington and New York, they uh, at least they went towards, I think they had, uh, there were three court orders uh, which challenged this and um, they uh, went against this because they said that we've worked so hard, we've trained, we've put so much uh, not just, you know, like monetarily, but, you know, the training and everything that goes into it. We've um, invested a lot in these people and they're de deporting it. So 
not just you know like the the monetary loss that they they have but the impact on society as a whole because they've cre- created a community over here and uh, they have friends they have co-workers they they've lived their entire life the mental uh, you know um, uh, what do you call the mental pressure on them is 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 severe and it and, it, and in a society as a whole it causes a very uh, negative impact um so that and also um one of the they don't come into conservative but another um reservations about reservation about these daka participants was the was from people who have been through legal immigration like the uh, what you call them the green card holders they have been through a, a very stringent process and um, it's a very long process it's a very difficult process to get a green card and they've been through it all of it and when they see these people uh, coming in their parents coming in illegally and then they're getting the benefits um, um of of you know of what daka uh, is they're uh, they consider it unfair because they've been through all of this and then someone comes in and just takes away the benefits so there's this uh, there's another uh, you know these are also the stakeholders involved and they're also against you know them just keep getting a you know a free pass and just getting the jobs or you know all these benefits that they have to offer also the uh, last i guess uh, stakeholders or probably the biggest stakeholders are the daka participants themselves as as you have mentioned before that when they came here they were 6.5 years old and now they're uh, adults and now they've spent their entire life here they've built a community they, the only culture probably they know or remember is or uh, is the american culture and they considered considered themselves a part of this but now with the obama administration they had some kind of security um of you know their employment or education or whatever or you know just even their life uh, in america but now they have this constant threat or they have this constant thing that that's looming over their head that any minute now they could be deported or because congress has like you you said that uh, congress hasn't been able to come to a decision for like it's we uh, we can see the history they haven't and even now um it hasn't uh, been able to come to a proper decision Does anyone know personally DACA recipients? Yeah, yeah, me as well. Um, did do you have you had conversations with them in? I guess since uh, since the Trump election about mm-hmm. how the uncertainty is impacting them, and does that seem to be the case just anecdotally? Uh, yeah, the few people that I have talked to about it, uh, it just kind of seems like a general sense of fear, mm-hmm. um, not knowing. at least uh with daca uh there was a sense of okay i have this long and i know right now i'm okay and then it all of a sudden it became a, a day-to-day fear um just like what you're going to do for that day yeah this uh just and then i let's move to some of the solutions i think um i've had some experience with this as well um a family friend is a daca recipient and this person was considering college but was so kind of anxious and defeated by just the broad talking points that this person had decided that there there wasn't any reason to invest in their future because they didn't know how long they would be able to stay now luckily we were able to work together and then you know he could see some type of future and got accepted to college and and is doing that now but it, it is interesting i think to to see some of the personal stories of just the rhetoric around it and how that impacts you know half a million people. 
So how do we get to a better spot? I think no matter what side of the political aisle you're on or what country you're from, this seems suboptimal. Seems like maybe not the best place for us to be where half a million people's fate is based on a memorandum from the president. So what did your group come up with as some potential solutions and recommendations? Yeah, so first and foremost, um, I think the um, general consensus is that to have some sort of bipartisan um, legislation passed. Um, we also discuss um, other things such as like, um, you know, helping from Mexico, but I'll like to talk about um, just what the legislation that we would propose or recommend to see. Um, so as currently there isn't any um, legislation that's being um, talked about in Congress, but this is a time sensitive issue. Um, and so Basically, we're, we took into consideration what the current climate was. Um, with a Republican majority Congress right now, as of right now, and mm -hmm. then um, with um, a Republican president. And so in order to pass some sort of legislation, um, we looked and actually saw like what um, President Trump has um, put... Um, has recommended to Congress um, to put in this legislation in order to pass any sort of um, DACA reform or DACA, um, I guess, citizenship path. Um, and basically he kind of said that these are the things he needs to see in order to sign it. And so these are things that we really like want to evaluate because we want him to sign the bill into law, basically. And so um, he wanted to have funding for the Southern Border Wall, the safe return of unaccompanied, undocumented children, um, asylum system reform, immediate removal of illegal border crossers, um, hiring of more immigrant judge, immigration judges, ICE attorneys, federal prosecutors, and ICE officers, the ceasing of sanctuary cities, establishing swift removal of visa overstayers, strengthening of U.S. worker verification, the ceasing of extended family chain migration, and establishing a point-based system for green cards. Um, this is a super comprehensive list, and um, we are trying to focus mainly on DACA um, citizenship path or just, like, what to do with these individuals. But um, I think the issue right now is that um, um, Democrats tend to want to just, like, pass just, like, a path to DACA's um, citizenship pathway, and then um, Republicans... The general consensus doesn't seem to be that they are against that, but they want to tag these other things that Trump listed onto the bill. And so that's like um, what is up for debate. And so we decided um, what we thought were fair compromises. And so that is as follows, that um, we want to see in the legislation some sort of clear path to citizenship for these qualifying individuals so that basically DACA would become part of law and that they would have some sort of... Um, way to become citizens because um, we just kind of like the consensus seems to be that it's kind of not fair for them to be punished for their um, their, fam their parents or families um, um, choices yeah. yeah and so and the expense right yeah for and sure price, yeah. and um, but also um, we understand that if we can't just pass that law alone that we'll like tag on some of these um, things that um the Trump administration um, sees as a priority. So basically we found a lot of these things to be um, good solutions and, and some of them may be um, to be revisited at later times. And so um, 
we kind of agreed to all of them, but the immediate removal for illegal border crossers, especially in the case of asylum seekers, um, the ceasing of sanctuary cities, and the ending of change, um, chain migration. Um, aside from those things, we thought that if those things wanted to be passed, that that could be um, additional legislation for another time, but um, that you know other things that we're about to talk about um, could be a part of this legislation, and that would be a fair compromise that um, I feel like conservatives would get, you know, um, more clear um, enforcement of the, Im the current immigration laws, as well as, um, you know, clear standards for asylum and, um, and visa holders and um, more infrastructure with hiring of judges and things like that. And so we've decided that, that those were fair things to put in um, the legislation, but maybe um, not. Like What else? Also, like another solution that we uh, we came up with was because um, I think Yvonne already mentioned that out of all the DACA recipients, eighty percent of them are Mexicans, and so we looked into that and we see that most of them, these people, they're not they're coming in from Central America through Mexico and they want to get into the United States. So instead of like Katie mentioned uh, earlier, instead of deporting these people who are currently here and creating all this fear and anxiety. A better option would be uh, just dealing with Mexico head-on, helping them, um, giving them aid, and helping them uh, better their immigration policies or their border control. Uh, and we're already doing that. Uh, the U.S. is already doing that. And in 2016, the uh, number of immigrants, um, the deportations from Mexico, they went from 105,000 to 151,000. So we're not just providing mo uh, monetary aid, we're provi providing these, the immigration officers training, uh, uh, equipment, and also with this Trump administration, Mexico is even more than ready to work with them over this immigration issue because um, they in, in the past they have been, because there's this fear that comes with him, with Trump and, you know, the wall and all that scenario, there's this fear that comes with it and uh, Mexico is, is actually willing to, because there are a lot of articles on this that how Mexico is willing to help Trump uh, resolve this this issue. It'll act, it'll probably reduce the number of people that come in, and uh, and we won't have so many be people being affected by it that eventually come into America. And um, uh, the cost of deporting uh, a darker recipient is ten thousand dollars. This will be costly too, but in the long term, it won't create because I think. Part of the reason why Congress is aren't, isn't also able to come to a solution is because it has a lot of pressure from both both sides. You know, like, it decides as well. So uh, this would be a good solution in the sense that you're not tackling the problem head-on like here, but, you know, uh, it's more of a long-term solution. It will help in the long term, uh, reduce the number of immigrants that are coming here. Yeah, I like the... Um I like your solution. I, I find this issue um, in the way it's discussed on the national stage as infuriating as anything else. Um, and part of the reason is it seems like there are some clear uh, or some clear room to negotiate. And really, it doesn't seem like we should be that far apart um, when you look at the evidence. So it seems to me any realistic solution, as you say, has to include some pathway to citizenship if for no other reason because of the costs associated with uh, with removing people, the cost to the economy, the cost to communities, the human cost, the actual cost of physically deporting people. So that seems like 
we're talking about a half a million people just with DACA, right? And this isn't even the, the broader picture of of uh, illegal immigration. And so it seems to me there has to be some type of reasonable pathway to citizenship. And it also seems that in the security era, that there's a really strong argument for increased border security, um, as that we're trying to navigate a whole new world of terror and the different ways in which attacks can be uh, inflicted upon a country. That it seems also reasonable that we want to have a strong border that has clear uh, deterrence from people who are just coming to come, but also has a clear process for processing political asylum seekers. And then we need resources for those things. And that um, we need resources for the infrastructure of this too, which is part of the, the uh, Trump proposal that you mentioned, which is more judges, more officers, more border patrol, and well-trained folks. And so, but when you talk about this at the national level, or you hear people talking about it, I have friends that are ardently Republican and ardently uh, dem Democrat. It's it's like talking to two different planets in some ways. A lot of times, right? I mean, you uh, you, you talk with uh, with liberals who or Democrats who don't really see somehow the need for increased border security, as if that's just not an issue. And why would we be talking about that? And then you have um, conservatives making arguments that these people have broken laws. And so the consequence de facto should be serious, like deportation, deportation to countries that aren't stable, where it could be a death sentence to lots of people. And that it the evidence shows that deporting these people is hurting us. It's hurting our economy. It's hurting our, 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 our well-being and thus our national security in that way. And so it seems like there's real clear overlap here, but that any time we get close, the traditional talking points just kind of take over and it turns really, um, you know, unproductive. And I think both parties have a lot to, uh, to, uh, to credit for this. Um, any, so we've been going for 47 minutes, goodness gracious. Um, is there anything else about this topic that you, uh, you had, members from all kind of different um, backgrounds on this. Are there any dissenters? Are there, is there something that you didn't agree to as the group that you think is a good final or kind of at the end here that you feel like wasn't fairly treated or is there other big solutions we're missing? Is there anything else that in closing we should make sure we address? Yeah. Uh, so like going on the judges, uh, just a quick note about like what judges we have right now. There are uh, 58 immigration courts around the country with 330 judges. There are currently over 764,000 unresolved immigration cases. 22, more than 22,000 of those cases are from 1998. So just to give you a scope of the size of that, and there are, again, 330 judges working on those over 764,000 cases. That seems suboptimal. It's <laughs> <laughs> the only way I know how to put that. Uh, anything else? Yeah, and we also can tighten in the standard on asylum seekers because the uh, process of um, of asylum application is more loosely. So uh, these immigrations can through this process to uh, to get their um, maybe some social welfare and other things. So uh, we believe maybe we can enact more complicated application process and standards to deter uh, come from the United States. 
On the other hand, uh, we also can uh, reduce the incentive for these asylum seekers because if they stay in the United States for one year, they, they are eligible to apply for permanent residency, social security, Medicare, and other social affairs. So uh, we, we uh, through the tightening standards on asylum, maybe we can reduce the numbers of these illegal immigrations. Mm-hmm. Also, um, one of the things uh, I, I read a couple articles about is uh, just create a maybe try creating a, a points-based system as a pathway to citizenship. Uh, I read a couple articles about Australia how they use a lot of worker programs to bring in skilled workers into uh, into their economy to uh, help their economy, and it works pretty well. And then there are also programs that will hire uh, unskilled workers and that will teach them skills. Um, and so maybe looking at perhaps creating a system to where uh, we were able to effectively um, uh, give these people points based off of what they're doing in the U.S. and, and how they're progressing. And, um, and at a certain percentage or point system, they will uh, be uh, eligible for citizenship. Mm-hmm. And, um, and obviously that can go different ways. You know, if they break certain laws or do anything crazy and stuff, they can get reduced points or maybe even get disqualified completely. So that would just have to be something that would have to be explored. But it, it would probably, perhaps, it would be a fair and unbiased way to like offer the opportunity for people to gain citizenship and, uh, and bring in all the skilled workers as well. Very nice. Yeah, and that also goes into a possible like visa reform. Um, so if we were able to like make it easier to get a student or a work visa, that could deter illegal immigration in that uh, the, the current way of getting the student work visas is very difficult. Uh, there's a lot of fees with it, and especially for someone who uh, doesn't speak English or English is their second language, technical terminology on it can be uh, very confusing, and it can make the whole process kind of discouraging to go through. So if you made those a lot easier to get, hopefully you'd have more people on visas. Uh, kind of a downside of that is you'd have to strengthen the enforcement of visa overstayers which has proven to be difficult as uh, the act that Clinton passed was kind of the primary aim of that, and we still have had trouble with that. So there's definitely pros and cons to uh, increasing accessibility of visas, but in the end it could uh, deter illegal immigration. Well, kudos on you um, for coming together with all your different backgrounds and in a very reasonably rational way addressing some of the challenges. Um, uh, I think there are some, this is another case where I think there are some queer ways that if you look at the evidence, even taking in both viewpoints and mixing that with the evidence, there's much, much better ways to handle this than we have been. So uh, thanks for your work on this. Uh, Thanks for the conversation. And hopefully it is informative to both lawmakers and uh, the general public. So thank you again.